0: There is an outline again this week beginning on page 8 for the sermon, and we take up this morning one of the parables of Christ that is most well-known and perhaps most abused in its meaning of, of all of them. This is the story, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and we find it in Luke 16 verses 19 through 31. The text is printed in your bulletin on page 8, or you may follow along in your pew Bibles or personal Bibles in whatever version you might have. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and and longing to eat from what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to him, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. May we bow together. Lord, from this memorable story, we pray that you will make application in our hearts today that will make a difference in the days to come. May we not be hearers only, but also doers of your word. and May we not consider your word a casual thing to be taken more or less as we desire, but may we see it as the very ruling hand of God in our lives so that we might come under its authority and be transformed into the likeness of Christ, who was ever its servant and who now reigns in heaven at the right hand of the Father, upholding that word of which not a jot or tittle has been changed. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. I don't remember preaching very many sermons here on hell when we come to one today. It's a topic, however, that is widely treated in Jesus' ministry, probably spoken of more in the Gospels than all the other places of the Bible put together. Jesus' book speaks of it here, and we notice just a few things as we begin, because hell continues to be a controversial subject. Reflecting on it, we note that if it was anyone else who taught us this doctrine of hell, we would find it nearly impossible to accept it. But the one who knows the most about love, that's Lord of love, is the one who teaches about hell and who also rules over it. So while hell is a place of condemnation and death and destruction and pain and torment, as we see, we find that we are learning about it from the one who is the fountain of love and grace and mercy. So we listen. Unless you can agree with the Christian teaching on hell, furthermore, you have no idea how much God has loved you. If you don't see what you're missing by his grace, you appreciate what you're missing less when it is this bad. And thirdly, let us say for sure again that hell is a real place. Don't say, Jesus, I'm more compassionate than you. I don't believe in hell. Ignoring this reality is like ignoring Satan's influence in the world. It's a serious mistake. And just as I said last week regarding the influence of Satan, so we often... Uh, that influence is often overlooked and diminished and attributed to other things. In the same way, we often pass our days without a ready apprehension of the dangers of hell, the reality of hell, and the fact that so many are headed there. So let that be something of a context as we begin. What we have here is a very vivid story, as I say, with our compelling characters. We have a rich man and a poor man, We have famous people, Abraham. We have mysterious places. None of us have seen heaven. None of us have seen hell. We haven't been there. We don't know anything about it except what we're told. And it does touch our own future. Our destiny resides in one of two places. There isn't a third. We are headed for heaven or hell. This should make us interested, to say the least, in everything we can learn about it. And we do learn some things. What is the point of this parable? Let me start by saying that it's not that rich people will go to hell and that poor people will go to heaven, although it has often been used to teach that because this is not a full-orbed expression of the gospel. People have looked into this parable and have taken it and twisted it to mean just that. The context of this parable is another one having to do with money earlier in the chapter, the parable of the shrewd manager, which Kevin gave us just a few weeks ago, and also it is the context of Jesus' discussion with the Pharisees about money, as in verses 13 and 14. He's talking about the complex relationship between money and faith, and in, along the way he induce, introduces one of his favorite topics, which is hell. We should do a series sometime. On it. He speaks of it often, really. Several questions arise, and let me say as I begin that this is such a full and rich parable, bringing in, in some ways more questions than it answers, that I can't possibly exhaust its meaning today. Not that you expected me to, but let me give that little disclaimer. Why did the rich man go to hell? Why is he there? We're told that he was wealthy, and all of his life he had everything he would possibly want or need of a luxurious kind. Did he engage in bad business practices? Did he have ill-gotten gain? Was he sent there because he had money, as I said earlier? He's a Jew. He calls him Father Abraham. He calls out to him, uh, and he seems to have some background of faith or in the Scriptures. I think the meaning is something like this. The rich man is in hell because his earthly wealth impeded his willingness to listen to the truth. It distracted him. Lazarus is in heaven because he did listen and did take heart to heart the truths of the faith. So be very careful not to allow anything to keep you from hearing his word. Remember we said the the primary skill in the kingdom of God is to be able to listen to his word and spirit. But this parable does not actually say what I've just written here. We can't draw that directly from the text, and we have to get hints from the text. And in at least four instances, I believe we get pushed in this direction for meaning. The first one is the issue of his name. Much has been made about the fact that, of course, this isn't the same Lazarus as in John 11 and the one that Jesus brought back from the dead, but much has been made of the fact that of all of Jesus' parables, about 45 of them, this is the only person in any of them that has a name, except for Abraham, of course, who's the character. But in terms of the illustration of the story, he's the only one to have a name. So they've looked closely at his name. It means God is my help or God is my salvation And it's been inferred by many commentators that his name implied what he lived by. He lived up to his name. He called on the Lord for his help. He had a pitiful life. He had no one to help him. He had no money to improve his condition. And he had no way even to prevent the dogs from coming and licking his sores. He wasn't just poor, he was sick. He was pitiful. He was no doubt forsaken. But evidently, in giving him this name, Jesus is emphasizing that he took God as his help. What sends us to hell is making anything besides God our help. All the rich man was, in the final analysis, was a rich man. He had no help. His money couldn't help him. It's the same, it's the same principle of the Old Testament teaching about idols. What can wood and gold and hay and whatever you want to make your uh, idol out of, what can it do for you? Nothing. It can't save you. It can't do anything disappoints you in the end all the rich man was was a rich man without his possessions he was nothing nothing to commend him no one to stand with him regarding his future so he was consigned to hell who are you what name would you give yourself are you a Lazarus is God your help Ask him to be your help and nothing else. No form of service, no gift, no ministry, no kindness, no life of faithfulness. None of these will help us if he doesn't. Come to him as rich men fail to do before it's too late. A second question, what is hell like? There's a lot of interest here, a lot of fascination. What is it like Well, we know at least this much. The separation between good and evil is real and permanent. It's not only a real place, but it's separated from and distinct from heaven. One of the interesting things about the parable is there's some kind of line of sight between heaven and hell because the rich man can see Lazarus and he can see Abraham and he addresses them and speaks to them. We don't want to carry that too far, but it does give us a little insight. We know further that hell is a place of disintegration. There, are fire. there is fire there, and it rages. Fire is an environment that breaks things down. Throw a log on the fire, and a half an hour later, it will just be reduced to ashes. It breaks down whatever it comes in contact with. It will drop a house. It will drop anything that comes under its sway. By all things, the Bible said, by God, all things consist. By God, all things consist, as it says in Colossians 1.17. In Him, all things hold together. He is the exclusive source of holding things together. Fire and hell disintegrate them. The more you center things on yourself, the more your life breaks down here and there. In hell, sin breaks out like a forest fire, and you disintegrate like a total car. Now, this is not to say that the Bible teaches annihilation. You know, a log is burned up, and it disintegrates, and it's gone more or less, except for the ash. And some have said that uh, because of the earthly properties of fire, that therefore those who would be burned in hell would eventually be annihilated, would be gone in some way, and their suffering would be over. But there's no indication of that here or anywhere else in the Scripture. It's a good theory because it seems that then the torment would have an end, an outcome, and a finish, and finally things, the, the debt would be paid, so to speak. But the Bible doesn't speak of it. It seems that it's endless. There is no annihilation of those who go to hell. They continue in torment and continue and continue. So it's a place of disintegration that's also a place of justice. The doctrine of hell is the most fair and just doctrine in the Bible. There's nothing unfair, unjust, or inappropriate about it. Notice that the man doesn't claim injustice. He he inches in that direction, but that's not really his claim. It's not really his interest. You get in hell what you have been wanting. Leave me alone, God. Stay out of my life. Go away from me. I have my own ideas. I have my own distractions. I have the things that I want to do. Leave me alone. And finally, and ultimately, in hell, the only thing you can think of is yourself because you're in such pain and misery. The only thing left is self-absorption, so as it were, and you get what you wanted, continual and permanent focus on self. They engage in conversation. What do we learn from these conversations back and forth? A third hint about where we're headed for the meaning of this parable is, comes from what the rich man asks for. Let me ask you, if you were in hell and you were in his situation, what would you ask for? Well, he wants water. He wants relief. But it's interesting that he doesn't ask to get out. He doesn't say, get me out of here. That's what I think I would say. Maybe not. So is he consumed by his self-absorption, that all he can think about, again, is himself. Give me some relief, please. Can I have just a drop of water to relieve my torment and my suffering? He asks this of Abraham. He says, tell Lazarus, my former servant, my former dog that I kicked and walked on and stepped over, tell him to get me some water. Note, too, that he makes no appeal to the, to the superintendent of, of hell. He doesn't ask God for anything. At no point in the story does he address God. He's still willfully turning away from him. He wants relief for himself. He doesn't want to get out because well, I don't know why. I think I would. But evidently this is his just reward and he's at some level curiously and perversely content. To be there. Abraham says, you got what you asked for, and agony is the result. Lazarus asked for God's help, and now he is enjoying it, but I can't help you. There's a great chasm fixed here. Again, this is a hint that Lazarus was calling on the Lord from his pitiful condition. The rich man says, but I didn't have enough information. Go and tell my brothers to read the Bible. I didn't get a fair shake. This is the first time he really says there's a little injustice here. But his claim is not true. It's not true. For Abraham is quick to respond and say, the reason that you don't believe is not due to a lack of information. You were a good Jew. You know who I am. You know I'm Abraham. You recognize me even, though you didn't know me in this life. You had Moses and the prophets, and you ignored them. You didn't need more information. You had the information. It wasn't a lack of information that put you here. The rich man, note, will not ask for forgiveness. How do I get out of here? Can I be rescued? He's out of touch with reality, even though it's all around him even though he's suffering from the hard truth of it. He thinks he's there because of unfairness, and he will not ask for forgiveness so that he might get relief. Instead, he asks for water, a physical palliative. When in the end you finally get what you've been asking for all along, as I said earlier, that's hell. He got what he wanted. He wanted God to leave him alone, He didn't want to submit to the requirements of the law regarding faith, and so so he suffers. What are you doing regarding God? I must confess that from time to time I find myself saying to him, leave me alone, I got this. I can handle it. This isn't hard. But the Bible says everything that's not done by faith is sin. So in that moment of self-strength or uh, misapprehension of my true condition, I'm sinning against the Lord by not walking by faith with him. Maybe you too. So what do we do with this? Well, Jesus doesn't offer any concluding applications in the story. It just ends. And unlike some of the parables, he doesn't go back at a later time and tell them this is what this means and this is what you should do. So let's look at some of the possible and probable implications. We may infer at least these things. Matthew 28 says, Do not be afraid of the one who can kill the body, but not the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Realize that death is a summer picnic in the park compared to the realities of hell. I dare say most of us spend far more time fearing death and praising God that by grace we've missed the pains of hell. Let's flip that. Let's take our death as a welcome mat to heaven. Let's take that as an opportunity to say, thank you, Lord Jesus, that day is coming when I will be relieved of the burdens of this life and I will be in your presence forever. It tells us also that our sin debt is so great that eternity in hell cannot pay it off. No, in, no inclination here that there's an end to this torment. In fact, in the book of Revelation, all arrows point to the fact that it is an ongoing and eternal perdition and condition. What Jesus experienced on the cross, therefore, must have been far worse than an eternity in hell, because he took all of our deserved hell experiences in a few hours, think of it, on his shoulders as we surveyed the wondrous cross in our singing earlier this morning, on his shoulders was carried not only our sin, but also the the penalty for our sin, which is death and heavenly torment forever. He carried that upon him. No wonder when we looked on him, we were appalled. As people hide their eyes, Isaiah said. He was disfigured beyond recognition, in part because of the physical torment, but especially because of the spiritual torment of being separated from his Father and bearing and weighing upon him all the weight of our redemption. The Scriptures lead us in the direction, even the Apostles' Creed, that he spent some time afterward with the dead in hell or at the gates of hell in some way, uh, speaking to those pris- uh, spirits who were in prison, as Peter says. In a, in a veiled way, we know that hell was on his mind As he died, not just the separation from his father, but the carrying of our burdens in those few short hours were crushing. Therefore, his suffering was unimaginably horrible, deep, extensive, crushing. And he says, you're worth it. i do it again. I'm glad to be here. Not in the human sense of enjoying pain, but I'm glad to be here because this is what the Father has called me to do, and I have said I would do it, and I'm keeping the covenant of redemption, and I'm fulfilling my promises here on the cross that I would be on that tree, tree of life. Make it a tree of life for those who come and eat of it. Unless you know the depth of his sufferings, you have no idea what you're worth and how much he loves you. That's the point. The point of the story is not just that hell's a bad place and don't go there. The point of the story is Jesus went into great effort and pain to keep you from there because he, he values you very, very highly. You are important to him. Think of what he did for you and make him your treasure. And you will get a name that lasts forever. It may not be Lazarus, but your name will be written in the book of life because you clung to the cross and to the Lord Jesus Christ. But if those who would reject his mercy out of a desire to be their own master and their own person will get his justice, you get what you ask for eventually, Don't ask for the wrong thing. If you try to escape from him, this world will become a suburb of hell, a threshold to an eternity of torment. But in this world, if you leap into his arms, you will dwell in a suburb of heaven. We live on the outskirts of a great city, a great metropolitan area, and we are highly influenced by what goes on in the city itself. Likewise, we either live on the suburbs of heaven or hell, and we are heavily influenced by what goes on inside. We are drawn to the fire if we turn from Christ. We are drawn to faith if we turn to him. I appeal to you in his name. Cling to Christ. Come to him if you haven't already. Take him as your Savior. Embrace him as your Lord. And thank him that all the fires of hell you will not endure because he endured them for you. Let us pray. We must admit, Lord, we spent very little time this past week, this past month, thinking about the fires of hell. We're worried about this world, this life, and the next few weeks and months and years, and we're concerned about getting our affairs in order, and we're concerned about everything except the blessing of forgiveness. And we've forgotten to thank you, truly, deeply thank you for what you did at the cross through your Son that enables those who trust in him to escape a terrible, terrible destiny. Likewise, by not thinking about hell, we've failed to care a bit about our neighbors who are headed there and the many people we know who reject Christ. And instead of pleading to them for to come as As the rich man pleads that his brothers be warned, we haven't warned our neighbors as we should. Forgive us, Lord. No one wants to hear about the reality of hell, but that doesn't make it not so. And help us not to do so in a hateful way, but rather in a loving way. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder this morning. Thank you for Lazarus, who we will see one day, and Abraham in that great place. Lord, Christ reigns forevermore. We ask in his name. Amen.